Well, unless you've had your head in the sand these past few weeks, you've no doubt heard all about our presiding bishop's smash hit at the royal wedding last month. His sermon on the power of love was one, of, one for the ages, I think, garnering great praise across generational lines, launching a renewed passion for evangelism in the Episcopal Church, and most importantly, earning him an interview on the Today Show and an opportunity to forecast the weather with Al Roker. Yes, the Episcopal Church has finally made it. I did love the royal wedding. Kate got me up at 4 a.m. as tech support to help her tune in the live broadcast. And to my surprise, I, I stayed up and watched it all. And I was moved. I was moved by Bishop Curry and by the cellist and by the choir and the finely executed liturgy and dramatic setting. But you know what also moved me? The immovable Queen of England. Despite the almost irresistible tide of joy and positive emotion flowing during that ceremony, nary a smile did she crack. And during the obligatory chorus of God Save the Queen near the conclusion of the service, she sat poised as ever, the only one not singing, of course. There was no doubt who occupies the throne. I've been watching The Crown on Netflix lately, a binge-worthy biopic on Queen Elizabeth and understanding a little bit about what she's been through during these past six and a half decades wearing that crown sheds a little light on her poise during the wedding. She's seen it all. Everything from the rise and fall of great political leaders and the movements they represented to crowds called to action by the preacher of the day only to lose their momentum as soon as the Today Show has moved on to other topics. She's seen it all, and she's endured. An emotional anchor for her people, she keeps calm and she carries on. I would imagine that seeing a 92-year-old monarch who has endured so much humbly and proudly embody the role of a dignified, relevant leader could do things good for national morale, kindling pride in the hearts of her countrymen. So yes, Bishop Curry had a great sermon, but the Queen of England delivered, and the people love her for it. And given the polarizing politics of their current prime minister, I wouldn't be surprised if the people of Britain began clamoring for the queen to reassert some control. And they wouldn't be the first. As we heard this morning in the lesson from 1 Samuel, the people want their king. Samuel had been doing an admirable job governing the people of Israel as their judge. He was one of many who had championed the Israelites, wisely guiding them through conflict with other nations and keeping their focus on God. But it turns out that the apples fell a little too far from the tree in this case, and the Israelites were not as pleased with Samuel's sons, who were to be his successors. Instead, they wanted to be like everyone else and have a king instead of a judge. We're determined to have a king over us, they say, so that we also may be like other nations and that a king may govern us and go before us and fight our battles. As you can imagine, for Samuel, that probably smarted a bit. And so Samuel complains to God. And God says, they can have their king, but to beware, because... This king may not behave like the king they're imagining. Long story short, people did get what they wanted, the king to fight their battles. 
And this leader fought and fought and fought, disobeying God several times in the process, driving a wedge deeper and deeper between the people and their God, their one true leader. At its core, this story is a familiar one. The players are different, but the message is as old as Moses and Mount Sinai. It's a story about the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself any idol. In this case, we're not talking about golden calves or ancient Babylonian gods. We're talking about the idols we create in our minds. In the case of the Israelites and their desire for a king, they thought they knew exactly what they needed. They didn't need to listen, listen to Samuel. They didn't even need to listen to God. They created this ideal king or idol king in their minds. He would fight their battles and bring them glory, raise them up to a new status among neighboring nations. They were in love with the idea of having a king, but knew nothing of how that would play out in reality. So let's fast forward a thousand years. And there's this man named Jesus, he's preaching and he's casting out demons around Galilee and he cleanses a leper, he heals a paralytic, he even proclaims the forgiveness of sins. And the crowd develops this sort of love-hate relationship with him. On the one hand, he's doing amazing things and his preaching transfixes people. On the other hand, he's not behaving properly, so to speak. There have been murmurs that this man is the Messiah, the Son of Man, the one who is to overthrow the oppressive Romans and restore Israel to its once glorious state. But this man is from Nazareth, a backwater town. He has no credentials. He's not a military leader. Once again, as they did centuries earlier, the people had created this idol of a Savior in their minds. They knew exactly what they were looking for in a Messiah. But instead, this guy showed up. And he didn't match the idol that they'd been worshiping in their heads, and so they rejected him. Now fast forward 2,000 years, and you'd think we would have learned our lesson, right? But idolatry is alive and well. That pesky second commandment still haunts us. If only I could move to another town, things would be better, we say. If only I could get this job. If only I could have this amount of money. If only, take your pick, a Republican or a Democrat or a Green Party candidate could become president. And the list goes on. I see this time and time again, actually, in the church. When I work with congregations in transition, there's often this thought that if we could only find a priest who's 40 years old with 20 years experience, an accounting degree, and a handful of young children, all our problems would be solved. There's no number, there's no limit to the number of golden calves our minds can forge. Speaking of transitions, I'm excited to be here today, knowing that St. Peter's is nearing the end of their own. I had coffee with Greg over at Panera last week and was reminded just how promising this match is. Greg is a thoughtful, empathetic soul. His impressive gifts for leadership and administration, and he's ready to dive in and get to work with y'all. But despite the gifts he brings, Greg won't necessarily meet the ideal image of priest in everyone's mind. Nobody could. And so, what an opportunity 
we have to let go of the idols we've crafted in our minds and focus together, priest and congregation, on the worship of the one who is truly deserving. Not a judge, not a king or a queen, not a president, not a priest, but a man from Nazareth, a backwater town, a man with no real worldly credentials at all. But then again, I guess worldly credentials aren't really what we need, are they? Amen.